What is up, listeners of the world? My name is Jalen Tully, and welcome to J Talks. your girl Jalen and welcome back to another episode of J Talks. I pinky swear, cross my heart, hope to die, whatever promises you guys make or however you make your promises, I promise you guys that this week is not going to have the same air of loss, of grief, of anger that last week had. I'm going to be talking about the March Madness gender discrepancies, and then we're also going to be diving into a little educational history on the filibuster this week, which I'm really excited for. Um, And I might sprinkle in some more topics here and there, depending on what we get to or what we don't get to. But first, I do just want to take a couple of minutes and read you guys the victims from the Boulder shooting that happened last week. I didn't share them last week purely based on the fact that I was recording that episode the day after the shooting happened and we didn't have a full victims list. We didn't have a full report on what happened. And so I wanted to just wait. I thought, you know, I'd take last week and kind of just talk about the shootings more superficially and just in depth give my opinions on gun reform, give my opinions on gun violence and just kind of gloss over the surface of that. You know, we had two very atrocious events happen very close to each other in time and that enough is already so heavy on top of, you know, the year we've already had on top of the pandemic, on top of everything else we're dealing with, not just as a nation but as a world. So, you know, I just thought I'd break it up a little bit and then give you guys the victims list this week, which is what I am here to do now. I apologize for any mispronunciations of any names. I apologize for any slightly inaccurate um, information regarding the victims. I'm reading this off of the Coloradoian, 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 yeah, there we go. That was the right way to pronounce it. The Coloradoian.com website um, so I, I don't think there's going to be any inaccuracies, but, you know, God forbid there is, just bear with me here. There were 10 victims. I'm not going to read their name in any particular order. Um, I think the, I think this website just has them in terms of age, and so that's the way that I'm going to read them now. Denny Stong, age 20. Nevin Stanisic, age 23. Ricky Olds, age 25. Trelona Barkowiak, age 49. Suzanne Fountain, 59. Terry Leaker, 51. Kevin Mahoney, age 61. Lynn Murray, age 62. Jody Waters, age 65. And finally, Officer Eric Talley, who was age 51, and I don't want to make this into, you know, Blue Lives Matter doesn't actually care about their police, even though they don't. You know, that's not really the, that's not really the, you know, debate I want to get into right now, but I do just want to say he left behind seven children, and I actually read somewhere that he was actually trying to get out of this line of work, that he was actually trying to find another job outside of the realm of police work for this exact reason, because he has so many children, because he has so many young ones who depend on them, who depend on their father. And, you know, for this exact reason, he didn't want to leave them behind without a father. He didn't want to potentially have his life threatened, which, you know, makes this even more sad, which makes this tug at my heartstrings even more and just breaks my heart that much more 
He was the first officer on the scene and ran towards the gunfire, and in that was fatally wounded in the events. I said it last week, I'm going to say it again, my heart absolutely bleeds for the victims and their families. My heart absolutely bleeds for the people who were at that supermarket that day and who will probably never be able to go back without trauma just weighing on them. My heart bleeds for everyone in this country who has been touched by the negative truths of gun violence in this country. My heart breaks for anyone who has had to lay a family member to rest or has had to say goodbye too soon because of senseless gun violence in this country. I, I want to believe it'll get better. I want to believe that these numbers will drop. I want to believe that this will eventually get to a point in our society where this will not be an issue anymore, or at least not be a, as big of an issue as it is now. And we can only do that with each other. So again, like last week, I'm going to leave a bunch of links in the description, a bunch of educational resources. Moms Demand Action, that was a great one that I left last week. But just different ways that you can get involved into truly changing the gun laws in your area and in our country different ways that you can get make your voice heard and get the message out there and educate people on what's actually happening and what's actually going on and how how truly at risk we all are every single day just by living our lives normally. So again, my heart is absolutely broken right now thinking about the people of Colorado, thinking about the people of Boulder and Atlanta who has who have had to go undergo such atrocious events so close to each other in time. I hope that both of those communities are able to heal. I hope that both of those communities are able to not move on after this. I don't think I don't think anyone who undergoes something this traumatic could ever move on, especially a community as a whole. But I hope that, you know, there there's able to be some sense of normalcy achieved again. I, I hope that the scars of these two instances are are not are not too heavy a burden to bear on these two communities. That's all I can hope that comes from this. All right, I digress into hopefully a not as sad part of this week's episode and one of the main parts of this week's episode. That being, I want to talk about the gender inequality and the gender disparities that are existing, have existed, probably will continue to exist in the NCAA March Madness tournament that is currently going on right now or finishing up right now, should I say. I know this is a little late in terms of this story circulating on the internet, but I want to talk about this for a couple of reasons. One, this I think this is going to open up a conversation for us in terms of how we view women's sports versus men's sports. I think there are certain ideologies that exist within our society that make us think that women's sports are more disposable, women's sports are not as popular, not as watched, not as cared about, most of the time just blatantly just forgotten about. And finally, the point that I want to lead directly into is the fact that I grew up a three-sport female athlete all through high school, and with that experience came the fact that I saw firsthand how forgotten about women's sports are, how unappreciated women athletes are, and so I just want to talk about that, and I want to share my own personal experiences regarding this if you don't actually think that this is an issue, if you don't actually think that gender inequality in sports is an issue, because it is. It, it is, and it starts from when you're a child and it goes up to, you know, should you ever make it to the pros? It exists even past that point. So I want to talk about that now. Like I said, I grew up a female athlete. I had been playing sports since I was a wee little child all the way up until I graduated high school. I was always athletic. I was always moving. I was constantly doing something. And up until my last full year of high school, I was actually a three-sport athlete, which meant that every single season, every single trimester of school, I was playing a sport or I was involved in a sport. And, you know, when I was younger, I definitely noticed it. I think that looking back... Even as a child, I definitely noticed how people would treat me versus the boys on my teams or 
the boys teams in general how differently they would treat us and I definitely saw that in you know the the things that we got and the admiration that we got and the amount of people that would show up to our games and how nice our uniforms were compared to the boys like just just things like that even for my travel teams even for the sports that I played where I'd be traveling all over New England and I'd go to other states and you know I'd play in tournaments like even then I'd notice that you know the boys always had better uniforms they always played on the better fields they always got first pick for what fields they wanted to play on. Like it was it was kind of just a thing and nobody ever really questioned it. And if you did, it was always just assumed that, well, they're the boys, so obviously they get what's better. As I got older though, and as I started to get into high school, it became impossible to ignore. Like it was so blatantly clear that girls sports were just not cared about, not by the school, not by the other athletes and not by the parents or the people who even went to our school, not by other students. When compared to boys sports, even if the girls team was doing better, even if the girls team for a specific sport was on their way to the finals, on their way to the championship, in the playoffs, and the boys team had not won a single game for that season, there's a good to fair chance that people would still only go to the boys games. And there was, you know, good to fair chance that people would still only talk about the boys games and the boys records and who was on the boys team. It was kind of just like I said, it was kind of just something that we had to deal with. And it was just something that we people just assumed we should have been okay with. Even though, like I said, some of the times the girls teams would have better records. The girls teams would have a better chance at winning playoffs. The girls teams would have a better chance at making it to playoffs. There would be astronomically better players, players that, you know, made all state and got national recognition on the girls teams. And again, you know, people really only talked about the boys teams. One of the biggest discrepancies, easily one of the biggest discrepancies was the people who would come to our games like I said, even if the boys team wasn't good for one season, even if they weren't winning, even if they weren't doing well, there would constantly be, especially at basketball and soccer games and baseball games, like the more bigger notarized sports, there would constantly be crowds. There would constantly be dozens, maybe even hundreds of people cheering for the boys team. And I came from a really small school, so hundreds of people is, you know, huge for us. And yet, you know, not even the male athletes would come to the girls' games. I remember, you know, playing soccer. I Like, I had friends on the male soccer team, on the boys' soccer team, and I would literally, like, beg, and I would ask them. I would be like, can you just please come to our games? Like, we're actually doing really, really well this season. I'm playing really, really well. I would really appreciate the support. We all would appreciate the support. And even on the days when their practices were at the same time as our games, even and they were practicing on the field next to where the game was happening, they wouldn't stay after their practice for longer than five minutes before getting in their cars and leaving. Because, you know, we just, I feel like as a society, we just have this inherent belief that girls sports are more boring than boys sports or girls sports aren't as intense or they're not as interesting, even though it's literally the same goddamn sport. Another really big difference that I noticed, and I noticed this because I had a moment that's like, ingrained in my memory because of this but the boys constantly had newer and better uniforms most of the time we had uniforms for you know a decade and sometimes we actually got the boys old uniforms um I remember one time I was probably a sophomore on my JV basketball team and the shorts that I got one of the shorts that I got it was the last pair of mediums that they had so I either had to take those or I had to take a pair of extra larges and I'm not big enough to fit into an extra large I'm 135 pounds and 5'5 so I was like okay like this is the last pair and they had period blood all over them like all over the butt all over the crotch like they were like it was noticeable 
And when I went to my coach and I was like, why do we still have these? Like, what am I expected to do with these? It's either I take these shorts that actually fit me or I'm going to be forced to take a pair of extra larges that don't fit me and I'll look like a moron. And my coach actually looked me in the face and said, oh, just take them home and try and wash them. And, you know, of course I did. I mean, I didn't really have a choice, obviously, but period blood doesn't really bother me anyways. Blood in general doesn't really bother me anyways. So I took them home, soaked them in cold water, um, got some stain solution, got some sort of bleach because they were white shorts anyways. So I could have used bleach on them and I did. And I ended up getting the stain out and they looked, you know, brand spanking new. But just like that, like if imagine if a male, if there was blood or period blood or any other bodily substance on, you know, a a male's shorts or a male's uniform and their coach was like, oh, just take it home and clean it off. Like, I don't think I don't think that ever would have happened, at least not at my school. And I don't think that really would have happened in any other setting. But because we're girls, we just, you know, are so used to it, quote unquote, that we're just expected to deal with it and be okay with it. And I think it's also important noting that my coach at the time who told me to just, oh, just take them home and clean them off was actually male at the time, which I just, looking back, I think it's so rich that if I had turned that around on him and say, well, you're the coach, you should take them home and clean them off. He would have looked at me like I had grown three heads because, you know, that, that that's gross. Why would he want to touch period blood? Um, but anyways, I got off topic a little bit there, but you know, those are just some, some events and some things from at least my athletic career throughout high school, throughout, you know, my entire life that I, I started to notice how differently I was being treated, not just as a girl in this world, but as a female athlete. I, for a very long time, I thought that athletics was a place where I could be myself, where athletics were a place, were a place where I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't seen as a black girl. I wasn't seen as a girl. I wasn't seen as inferior or less than. I was just appreciated for my athletic ability. And as I continued to get older and older, and as I started to not only open my eyes more to the true institutionalized disadvantages that women have when they are athletes, but in general to the institutionalized disadvantages that women have in society in general, I started to realize that oh my God, I am not appreciated for my athletic ability. I'm still seen as just a woman. I'm still seen as just a girl. And because of that, because of the fact that I'm a girl, because of the fact that I'm a female athlete, I am directly seen as not capable of as much because of those two facts. And like I said, as I got older, I started to truly realize how true that was. And I started to realize the true discrepancies that exist in sports. So when I see the March Madness drama, when I see the fact that the NCAA is perpetuating all of these discrepancies, perpetuating and allowing for all of these differences and all of this inequality to exist within the March Madness tournament, I am disappointed but not surprised, most definitely not surprised, but more than anything, I am, I'm kind of just thrown back to my experiences and I'm thrown back to being reminded of the fact that it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how far you make it in your career. You are, if you are a woman and you are playing sports, you are essentially seen as a prop. You are not seen as an individual, as a person who, you know, can do all of this amazing stuff with their body. You're not seen as someone who has the potential to do more than the average person can. You are seen as someone who, yeah, maybe has the potential to do more than the average person can, but you're a woman. And so in turn, that automatically discredits any accomplishments you've made, any titles you have to your name, any incredible feat you've been able to accomplish. Like that automatically just throws all of that in the garbage. 
And it's not even like there were minor discrepancies in the March Madness tournament. I want to make that very, very clear. There was an equality down to the types of COVID tests that the men versus the women were getting, which is, that's, that's ridiculous. That's insane to me. And just a reminder, this all started when a University of Oregon sophomore basketball player who is who is currently playing in the March Madness tournament named Sidonia Prince. Sorry for mispronunciations if I didn't get that completely right. But Prince posted on TikTok a TikTok video of the girls gym, which was a one singular weight rack that looks like it only went up to about 30 pounds versus the men's weight room, which uh, I'm sure you've seen the TikTok, but if you haven't, and I'm sure you could guess here, the men's weight room was fully equipped with not only full equipment, with not only full weights and racks and mats for working out and other machines to work different parts of their body, but they also had trainers, athletic trainers in there. They also had different types of medical personnel and first aid equipment. So their their gym was completely stocked with everything they would have needed, not only if they needed to work out, but also if someone were to get an injury if they worked out or tweaked something or tore something, whatever the case may be. Meanwhile, the women's, like I said, the women's weight room was a singular rack of weights next to their court. As you could guess, or as you already know, this video gained a ton of traction and resulted in people being pissed off at the NCAA and the blatant sexism that is being displayed here with the thought that women don't need more than a couple of weights in order to prep for the biggest tournament of the calendar year for women's college basketball. They thought that a rack of weights that only went up to 30 pounds would suffice. Which, by the way, I was probably able to work out with 40-pound weights by the time I was, like, in seventh grade. So the fact that they don't even think that these women deserve an adequate amount of weights or weights that go up to an adequate weight in general is super-duper insulting on a whole different level. And this one instance was not where it stopped, unfortunately. People did more digging, people did more looking into the tournament, more of the players came forward about different different types of treatment that they were getting versus the men, and people started to put together very, very quickly that the tournament was not equal for men or women in the slightest. There were discrepancies down to the, the gift bags that the athletes were getting. There were discrepancies down to the courts that the athletes were playing on. The men got brand new, created this year NCAA March Madness courts. Meanwhile, the women are playing on like college and high school basketball courts that have the volleyball lines on them. There are two separate three-point lines for the men and women. Like, like literally they, they're, they're playing like they're a high school team on a high school court. That's ridiculous. And like I said, the biggest tournament in women's college basketball for the entire year and you have these athletes who have already surpassed what the average person can do, have already surpassed what the average basketball player can do, you have them playing on high school courts with volleyball lines on them. That is embarrassing. Like I said, the gift bags were completely different. The men had all of this, you know, custom-made memorabilia, NCAA memorabilia. Meanwhile, the women got stuff that they probably found in, like, an old utility closet. They got, like, an umbrella and water bottles, like basic ass shit. Meanwhile, the, like I said, the men were completely decked out with brand new NCAA merch that was made this year. 
And probably one of the most disgusting differences and one of the dis more disgusting pieces of, in my eyes, this is blatant discrimination. I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know how you want to refer to it. But for the sake of this week's episode, I'm going to call it what it is. And it, to my, in my eyes, it's discrimination. But if you were a female coach or trainer or anyone who needed to be inside the bubble for the NCAA tournament, obviously because they're in a bubble given that we are still in a pandemic, and you have a child with you, an infant child that you have to feed and care for, that actually counts against the amount of people that you can have in a bubble. So let's say that a coach who's a brand new mother needs to take her baby in with her so that she can, you know, feed, change diapers, take care of, you know, her goddamn child. That means that the girls would have to have one less athletic trainer, one less assistant coach, one less medical staff, one less referee, like whatever the case may be, you would have to sacrifice the spot of someone else for the spot of a child, which is is so disgusting. And I'm completely aware, oh, mothers chose to be mothers. Oh, you know, they're making the decision to still coach and be mothers. And okay, I, I hear you with that. I really, really do. But my response to that is going to be to say motherhood shouldn't be a punishment for anything. Or on the other side of that, nothing should be a punishment for motherhood. Motherhood shouldn't result in a punishment of any kind. And unfortunately, that's really not the attitude that our society has, especially American society. I mean, think about it. We already don't give the women the incentives or the resources to make it pro in sports or succeed in general, even outside the realm of sports. We don't even give women those resources or incentives to succeed in other areas of society. So when we, on top of that, tell women that when they become mothers, when they prioritize family life over work life, they are inadvertently becoming a burden to not only society, but their workspace, their success, their own success. And these are the people who in the same breath are ready and willing to look at women's sports and look women in the eye and say, oh, women's sports aren't entertaining. Women don't have what it takes to be successful in sports or make it pro. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if you if you took men aside and you told men that they had to make decisions between living a bountiful, successful, not even just athletic career, but just a successful, bountiful career in general and raising a family and being a father and having that, you know, once in a lifetime experience, I'm sure we would have a lot less men entering pro sports. I'm sure we would have a lot less men dominating these career fields. When you give people an ultimatum like this and you don't give them any choice to get out of it, of course you're going to have people making the choice of family. Of course you're going to have people making the choice that I'd rather be a mother. I'd rather love my child. I'd rather love someone. I'd rather be married. I'd rather have a home. I'd rather, you know, than spend my entire young life, my entire young life that I could use being in love and being a mother and providing life for children playing sports. Like, of course, you're going to have people who are making those choices. And of course, you're going to have people who are making the sacrifice of not having as successful careers or not going into professional sports under having a family and having children. And the worst part of this, the worst part of the societal consequences we place on maternity and we place on motherhood is the fact that the women, the female athletes who do succeed, who not only have a plentiful sports career, but also have a plentiful home life and have children and have families and, you know, are completely involved in the lives, in the lives of their child, we further shame them and we further unappreciate them despite the fact that they have dealt with astronomically more than any male athlete ever has had to in his entire life. 
Probably one of the most prominent examples I can think of is Serena Williams. This woman has won 23 Grand Slam titles. Easily one of the most decorated athletes in the world and easily one of the best athletes in the world. I am not debating that with anyone. Because not only did this woman win over 20 Grand Slam titles, but she won one of them while she was pregnant, had her baby, and then came back for more. I, like, it's, uh, could Tom Brady do that? Could Tom Brady win a Super Bowl title while he was pregnant, have that baby, and then come back? Let me know when Michael Jordan can have a baby and continue to, you know, throw up threes. Let me know when LeBron James can push an egg out of his pee hole and continue to dunk on people like he does. Like, I don't, you know, like I said, women deal with, genuinely women deal with so much more. Women deal with so much more internal pain. Women deal with so much more struggle. Women deal with so much more biological hurdles than men do, I would feel comfortable saying when it comes to sports. And yet, they are, that's somehow not seen as a, as a superpower. It's seen as a debilitating factor. And it's seen as a reason that we should shame women and prevent them from pursuing success in sports fields and garnering success and garnering fans and adoration in sports fields the same way that men do. Again, it's, it's ridiculous. And I do want to say this, that while I am really, really glad the NCAA fixed the women's gym and now they have, you know, not, not the gym that the men have by any means, but they have equipment, they have racks, they have more than one pile of weights. It's, it's a, it's kind of like you would look at it and say, okay, this, this is a gym. This is some sort of training facility. All right. I can work with this. And while, like I said, super thankful they did that, super, I'm sure the girls that, you know, are currently playing in the Mar March Madness tournament are also super thankful that they did that. I, I think that they need to address the other discrepancies as well. And I think they also need to address the fact that they inherently, whether they meant to or not, whether they did it inadvertently or not, they need to address the fact that they have perpetuated by doing this, they have perpetuated the ideology that women's sports are disposable. And they have perpetuated the thoughts in our society that women are not worthy of going pro, that women are not worthy of being athletes that deserve our attention, that deserve our money, that deserve our time. That women athletes, despite playing with periods, playing with cramps, playing while growing a human being inside of your fucking body, that despite all of that, you still don't deserve the same rights and you still don't deserve the equal treatment that the men get because we prioritize men in this society and we think that men are more fun and more entertaining to watch. It's, you know, I, I think that they really do need to come out with a statement and work towards rectifying these mistakes and making this right. Because like I said, this this isn't just about weights. This isn't just about an inadequate rate, weight room. This isn't just about them giving the women less or not caring about the women as much, not caring about the women's safety as much, not caring about their health or their wellness or the, their games as much. Honestly, the bigger part of this is the fact that they have perpetuated these thoughts and that they have allowed for this ideology to become more normalized of, well, the NCAA got away with all of this, so why should we give a fuck about girls' sports now? And I, I do think they need to put more effort into rectifying that, and I do think they need to put more effort into recognizing the, the damage that they've done to not only the girls in the March Madness tournament, who quite frankly probably feel like shit right now, despite being some of the best female athletes that this country has to offer, but on top of that, they also need to recognize the damage that they've done in every other young female athlete all across the country who's seen this, who has ambitions to play in college, or even if they don't have ambitions to play in college, 
There are so many girls who are going to be turned away from sports. There are so many girls who are going to be turned away from even the prospect of pursuing an athletic career or some athletic future because of how they know they'll be treated, because of how they know they'll be seen, not just in the eyes of the country, but in the eyes of the people who are supposed to officiate these games and officiate these tournaments. And finally, I think they also need to recognize the damage that they've done to men in society, to men who already see women's sports as boring, as, you know, not as fun to watch, as insignificant as props, whatever, however people look at female sports. I, quite frankly, I don't really know how people look at female sports because, you know, I am, I was a female athlete. And as someone who played those sports, I never really saw a difference in terms of being able to sit down and be entertained watching a women's soccer game or sitting down and being entertained at watching a male soccer game. But anyways, those are just my thoughts aside. But like I was saying, I think there, there has been damage done by this, not just to the women playing, not just to the women coming behind them, but to everyone, everyone who saw and absorbed how these women were being treated and in turn normalized that and internalized that as something that's acceptable or okay. There's so much deeper damage being done by this. And you might say, oh, it's just a weight room. Oh, it's just some COVID tests. Oh, it's just a court or a goodie bag. It, it, it goes deeper than that. And it goes deeper than that into, it bleeds into our high schools. It bleeds into people not showing up for girls games in high schools. It bleeds into then lower self-esteem for female athletes, lower chances that they'll play sports in college, lower chances that they'll make it to professional levels. This stuff starts young. This stuff, you know, you don't just wake up as a woman one day and go, oh, so the world's going to discriminate against me. Awesome. Cool. That, that shit starts when you're a child. It starts with the underhanded comments. It starts with the boys getting better uniforms. It starts with more people showing up to the boys games. And then by the time you're a senior in high school and it's time to apply to colleges and you're getting these offers to play sports in college and you don't even want to anymore because at that point you don't even enjoy playing because at that point you have not gotten the gratification, you have not gotten the reward, you have not gotten the positivity from playing sports anymore that boys still do. And that's why boys go on to play college ball or college sports at such a higher rate. That's why boys go on to play pro sports at such a higher rate and why pro sports are enjoyed at such a higher rate when men are playing them. It starts young. It starts with this. And it starts with young children and families seeing stuff like this happen on TV and internalizing it as okay. And this is where, this is where, you know, I'm willing to put my foot down. And this is where I think the NCAA has to put their foot down as well and say, you know, the cycle starts with us and now it's going to end with us. And we're going to put more effort into not only showing female athletes that they're appreciated and respected and necessary to the functioning of our society, but we're also going to show female athletes that we're going to support them in whatever their career endeavors might be, in whatever their familial endeavors might be. I, I think people people miss how much these subliminal messages really impact, especially the youth of today. People really think that these subliminal messages just slip underneath the surface and that people don't recognize them, but we do. We, we see what these companies are saying. We see what these organizations are saying when they do stuff like this and when they fail to rectify them. So again, good on you, NCAA, for fixing the weight room. It shouldn't have been that pathetic in the first place, but now let's work on fixing everything else you've spit in the face of too. All right. That was fun. Kind of. Not really. A little bit, maybe? No, it wasn't. Okay. 
But if you didn't think that was fun, then you definitely won't think the next segment is fun because we are going to have a quick history lesson. And I say quick, even though it'll probably end up lasting like 15 minutes. But yes, we are going to focus on the history of the filibuster today, which if you asked me to define the filibuster, I would define it as a completely unnecessary aspect of democracy that gives the minority party power and in turn prevents debate and progress from taking place. Yes, I think the I think it is far past time that we abolish the filibuster. I think it is long overdue that we reform the way our Senate runs and the way our Senate processes are carried out. And abolishing the filibuster is, of course, a part of that. And while the filibuster does not inherently have a racist, quote-unquote, history, it has been used over the past century to keep in place racist policies and obstruct anti-segregation and civil rights policy from passing and taking place. Which, in turn, is why you have heard people like former President Barack Obama call the filibuster a Jim Crow relic because it has been used to uphold systems of oppression and racism. And just bear with me, because if you think I sound like a textbook now, oh honey, just wait, it's gonna get so much worse. (laughs) So the filibuster is actually not an intrinsic part of our Constitution or the Senate and how the Senate runs. Long speeches with the intent of delaying progress or delaying the vote of certain bills took place in actually the very first session of the Senate. It is not an ingrained part of the Senate process. It's not a normal, it was not a normalized part of the Senate process when our government was being constructed. However, as you could probably guess, former lawmakers saw an opportunity to delay and withhold votes by just talking for excessively long times, which is what they used, and they utilized and abused that power. As filibusters started to become more popular throughout the 19th century, there was no official or formal process to end a debate and force a vote. So even if the majority was tired of hearing this person talk for hours on end and they wanted to end the debate and force a vote on a matter, they had no power to do that. And as time went on, the term filibuster was officially coined about halfway through the 19th century. And just so you guys know, I want to make two quick points before I continue to talk. One being that I'm getting all of this from the .gov Senate website. You can find all of this if you just look up the history of the filibuster, which is what I did. The .gov government Senate website should be one of the first results that come up. And if you click on it, you will find all of the same information that I'm giving you right now. And the second point I want to make is that lawmakers are smart. Elected officials are smart. I'm sure that you know, 200 years ago, senators knew what they were doing when they were wasting time with a filibuster, but filibusters were not created with the malicious intent that they have today. The original point of the filibuster when, you know, they were first used through the 18th and 19th centuries was to facilitate debate and was to bring specific points forward. They People didn't just stand up and, you know, read phone books or incessantly talk or give recipes like they do now. Like, that was not really the premise of what a filibuster was. Like I said, 200 years ago, it was a very different setup. Not at all trying to mitigate the very negative and very detrimental effects that the filibuster has had on our history up until this point. But I, again, just wanted to reinstate the point that filibusters were not created or utilized with the intent to halt productivity as they are today. They were created in the intent to facilitate a good debate and facilitate further arguments to be made about why a certain piece of legislation should or should not pass. So I just wanted to make those two points very, very quickly before I kept going. 
And as time grew on and our country began to change, even though senators grew really tired of the actual event of the filibuster, many of them still agreed that it was necessary to the curtailing of the power of the majority and had and or has some essential part in terms of giving the minority some sort of power when it comes to making legislation or bringing forth certain arguments about certain pieces of legislation, which is a lot of the same arguments that people are using today when it comes to why we should preserve the filibuster and why we shouldn't abolish it, but instead just reform it. With all of that being said, however, as filibusters were utilized more and more throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, there were mounting pressures, especially from the president of the time, who was Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. Oh my gosh, his name's kind of hard to say. Um, but mounting pressures from the president of the time caused the Senate to adopt a rule that allowed cloture to be invoked with a two-thirds vote, and this was in 1917. And if you don't know, cloture is the process in which a majority votes to end a debate and vote on a piece of legislation and force a vote on a piece of legislation within the Senate. Sort of the same system exists today, and I want to point out that it's really not feasible. In the following four decades of 1917, when the cloture was invoked as a part of the Senate process, only five cloturs managed to override filibusters. In the following four decades, that is 40 years, and only five cloturs managed to take place. And so this kind of leads me to my next point and the next question that I want to answer. How has the filibuster actually upheld racism and discrimination? That's a lot of what people have been talking about recently. That's a lot of why people say that we need to abolish the filibuster or at the very least reform it. Um, like I said earlier, Obama has referred to it as a Jim Crow relic. A lot of people have used the, that same terminology when referring to the, to the filibuster. And I want to make the very crucial point that filibusters were incredibly useful to Southern senators who wanted to uphold racist legislation and prevent civil rights from passing, including but definitely not excluding anti-lynching laws. And civil rights legislation was actually not passed and able to survive the filibuster until 1964, until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And with all of that being said, the record for the longest individual speech during a filibuster actually goes to Strom Thurmond. His filibuster speech lasted 24 hours and 18 minutes, and he was filibustering against the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Which, going off topic a little bit here, I'm going to stop sounding like a textbook for a hot minute. I already know and I want to make the point again that I will never understand racism. I'm a black woman in America. If anything, I'm just going to suffer at the hands of it for my entire life. I will never understand how someone can hold that much hate in their heart for someone who, you know, just has more melanin in their body. But I want to make the point of how racist do you have to be? Because he didn't pee for that entire time. He didn't go to the bathroom for that entire time. He, he literally did not leave the podium for that entire time. And when he was giving interviews about it after the fact, he actually said that he trained his body to be able to go that long without going to the bathroom so that he could filibuster for that amount of time. And when I said earlier that people have begun to read through phone books, this is actually the man that I was referring to. He actually just started to read through the phone books and just read people's, you know, addresses and names and phone numbers like for, for hours, like for hours on end. In the worst way possible, and I want to make that very clear, I mean this in the worst way possible, but the amount of hatred that people hold in their hearts is absolutely incredible. Like, it, it's kind of baffling, it's kind of impressive, and again, the worst way possible, I want to make that clear. But I just, I couldn't imagine not wanting 
other human beings to have the same rights that I do so badly to the point where I would train my body to not go to the bathroom to the point where I would go 24 hours without sitting down, without sleeping, without having a meal, where I would sit at a podium and just read a phone book. And with the intent, with the pure intent of just preventing black and brown people in this country from achieving equal rights like that, I'm sorry, but that's fan behavior. (laughs) Like, that is fan behavior. You have dedicated all of this time. You've put all of this energy. How how much do Black people live rent-free in your head? <laughs> to make you go out of your way to dedicate this much time and this much energy and this much effort into doing something like this. And even though I'm laughing, I want to make the point that, like, this, this is abhorrent. This is disgusting. I wish nothing but the worst on this man and every belief that he has but it's like oh my like I like looking back at American history looking back at United States history and United States legislation it's like people are really trying this hard to prevent black people from having the power that they do in society and for to prevent black people from obtaining equal rights even I look at the voting act that was signed into place in Georgia and I look at you know the voting the voter suppression that's going on now after the the previous election it's it's almost it's almost a compliment in in the weirdest way possible i said it a couple episodes ago i i forget which one and i forget what i was talking about quite frankly but i said like the one of the quotes that really jump started my love for my blackness was i realized my own power when i realized how uncomfortable the color just the color of my skin makes people and like it's it it makes you in the weirdest way possible and i don't know if other black people feel this way and i don't know if other people in general feel this way but un- under all the annoyance under all the oppression under all the discrimination under all the dehumanization that we go through there's one part of me that's like a little bit satisfied there's one part of me that's a little bit proud of the fact that Republican lawmakers and white people and people in power in this country are jumping through every single hoop possible to prevent my voice from being heard because it means that my voice is more powerful than they know how to deal with. And, you know, like I said, I know that's a weird way to look at it. I know that's kind of an abstract way to look at it. A lot of people probably don't look at it like that. A lot of people probably just see this stuff as purely negative. But I mean, like, like Georgia turned out this past election, Georgia flipped blue. And not only did Georgia flip blue for the presidency, Georgia flipped blue and we got two new Democratic senators into our Senate because of Georgia, because of the black population in Georgia. That is, that is incredible to me. And that's the type of stuff that makes me feel this way because I know our own power. I've seen our own power. I see the power that black people have. I see the power in black voices in this country. And I am so incredibly proud that I, I I can say that I belong to this group of people that make so many other people in this country terrified of what I'm able to do with my voice and my power. Just, I don't, again, might be a weird way to look at it, might be an abstract way to look at it, but, you know, that that's how, that's how I keep my sanity when I see all of this voter suppression, all of this Jim Crow 2.0 bullshit going on. Um, I, I just got really off topic. Oh my God, I'm not even done talking about the filibuster. Um, But the last point I want to make about the filibuster, the last little educational tidbit I want to put in, is the fact that in 1975, policy was changed to a three-fifths vote, which is the same policy that we still have to this very day, in which 60 senators have to vote to um, end a filibuster and force a vote on a piece of legislation. 
Now I want to talk very, very quickly about my own personal beliefs on the filibuster, what I think should be done with the filibuster, and why I really don't appreciate all of the arguments coming from Democrats on why they don't want to end abolish the filibuster. It is no secret that American democracy and American government is a little bit screwed up. It is no secret that there are nuances of our government that really make no sense if you peel back a couple layers. This is one of them to me. This is absolutely one of the pieces of our democracy that makes absolutely no goddamn sense. If the people have voted, if the people have been able to vote freely, fairly, and openly in an election, and I make that point very, very clearly, I am very, that is, this is a hill that I'm willing to die on. I wholeheartedly think that once the people of this country have had the option and have made their voices heard, that the majority should be the majority flat out because they represent more people. People voted for them. People chose them. Point blank, period. That's just, that's, you know, that is the overarching point that I think should exist. To give the minority, any minority, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, and I say this as trying to be as nonpartisan as possible, no minority should be able to have the power to overpower any majority. I, I'm going to say that again. No minority should be able to have the power to overpower the majority. That is not democracy. That's not how democracy should work. If the people have voted and if the people have chosen who they want their majority to be, that majority should have the power of the people behind them. To keep a piece of our Senate in place that prevents the majority from getting their legislation passed. And I, like I said, I say this knowing that there has been policy during the Trump administration that Republicans were trying to pass that Democrats were able to shut down and not get done. And I say this also knowing that there was policy during the Obama administration that Democrats were trying to pass through and Republicans made it absolutely impossible. I say this knowing that that exists on both sides. And I say this knowing that there would be consequences, both good and bad, on both sides if the filibuster were to be abolished. But once the people have voted and once the people have spoken, I think it's, an, it's, a, it's a spit in the face to what democracy actually is. And it's a spit in the face to all the people who spent hours waiting in line to vote, who, who sacrificed time in their work days, who sacrificed time in their days to take themselves to the polls or to mail in their ballots or to drop off their ballots and make their voices heard in this democracy. And I don't say this because I'm necessarily against the idea of having a filibuster. I think debate is essential for democracy. I think hearing people on both sides and listening to these conversations and being a part of these conversations is essential to democracy as well. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to hearing people on both sides and completely just preventing the progress of democracy, I think that the lesser of two evils would be not hearing people on both sides. Because when you are literally preventing progress in a democracy, when you are literally preventing legislation from being passed, preventing bills from being passed, preventing laws from being put into place, that's not a democracy either. That's not a free and fair democracy either. So I think there's something to be said for both of that. While I think there should be some sort of way to facilitate conversation, while I think there should be some sort of way to healthily and respectfully and fairly keep a conversation and keep a debate going. I think there needs to be some point where we can we can get past the whole, okay, I don't want this legislation to pass just because Democrats are behind it, or I don't want this legislation to pass just because Republicans are behind it. And we need to get to a point where we're like, this isn't even democracy anymore because we're not making progress. We're not allowing for the other party to make progress. We ourselves are not making progress. Who are we benefiting by keeping this, this piece of 
a very outdated way of doing things a part of our Senate process. And more than anything, I'm really tired of the arguments that Democrats have in terms of, oh, well, we can't abolish the filibuster because then when Republicans gain a majority, then they're just going to ruin everything we did. And then they're just going to pass all of these, you know, voter suppression bills and, you know, gun rights bills and, you know, like everything that, you know, the Democrat Party is trying to reverse or push through now. And to which I'm saying, what a piss poor attitude to have. We literally have had majority in the House, the Senate, and the presidency for all of four minutes. And y'all are already thinking about the next time Republicans are going to take it away from you. Like, you can't, you, you can't talk like that and then get upset when you don't win elections because you are putting, you are putting that seed of doubt into the voters' minds. And you, you, you can't do that. You just can't do that, especially not so soon. You can't do that right now. Also, a little piece of advice to any Democrats who might end up listening to this podcast. If you abolish the filibuster and you're able to pass the legislation that you promised for the people of this country who put you in these positions, you will keep those seats and quite frankly, you'll probably gain more. If you're able to put in place a Green New Deal, if you're able to help the children at the border, if you're able to implement gun safety laws, and if you're able to, you know, get the coronavirus under control, get the pandemic under control, and make this country safer, better, and a health and a happier place to live for every single person here, every single person subscribing to marginalized groups, every single person subscribing to POC groups in the LGBTQ plus community, if you're able to make this country better for everyone especially the people who put you in those positions, again, you're going to win those positions back and you're going to win more. And, you know, I say that knowing that there are very critical midterms coming up. I say that knowing that there are Senate seats coming up in 2022. I I say that all knowing that. And I say that with also a twinge of doubt in my chest. I'm going to be completely honest about that too. I'm, I'm, I'm scared shitless and I'm nervous of what would happen if we abolished the filibuster and Republicans managed to gain control of the Senate again. That is a thought in the back of my head that I'm shamelessly willing to admit keeps me up at night sometimes. But when it comes to preserving a way of our Senate operations that for so long prevented black people in this country from obtaining equal rights, for so long prevented black people from having anti-lynching laws put into place, preventing black people from voting, prevented black people from anti-segregation laws, prevented black people from being able to exist in white spaces freely. It's just, it's a reminder that, that we haven't been able to progress. It's a reminder that despite everything, despite all of the progress that we've made or all of the progress that we like to pretend we've made, it nothing's really changed. And, you know, I think that there's there's more to be done for the morale of black people in this country and there's more to be done for the overall progress of this country by abolishing the filibuster than would be for keeping the filibuster in place or simply just reforming it. Again, I want to make it very clear that these are just my opinions. Um, I have, I, you know, even though I like to think I have an expansive amount of knowledge about this kind of stuff, I, I really don't know as much about policy and politics and, you know, the intricacies of how our Senate and Congress work. So this is literally just based on my opinion, what I know historically, what I know, how I know I feel. And how I know I feel when I, you know, read back the information that I just found online for you guys earlier in the episode. 
Personally, I feel like it's way overdue for us to abolish the filibuster and move into a more progressive state in this country, move into more of a truly majority rules, truly listen to the people and adhere to the power of the people way that this country should be running at this point in time. So yeah, at the very least, I think we should reform the filibuster and make it so that it actually is able to facilitate debate without hindering pros progress. But more than anything, I think it, I think we should abolish it and make it so that we are able to actually make progress in this country and live in a democracy that we like to say we are. All right, this week's episode is coming to a close. I want to say something very, very quickly because I haven't been talking about it, addressing it, even though I know what's going on, even though I know I should be. The Derek Chauvin trial in regards to the murder of George Floyd is currently underway. It has been underway for the last three weeks now in terms of the process of picking jurors, and now people are finally starting to step up to the stand and make testimony and recant some of what happened on that fateless day when George Floyd lost his life. I will be talking about that. I want to wait until more information comes to life and then I can just do it all at once. Um, this is This is something that as I'm starting to see more information come out, as I'm starting to actually watch some of the testimony and listen to what some of these people have to say, it's something that's very hard for me and I feel like it's something that's very hard for a lot of black people at a time like this. So like I said, I want to just wait, a, you know, maybe a month or when, when the trial is at more of a definite place and then I want to just talk about it in mass. But I, I have not forgotten that that child is going on. I have not forgotten what is happening in regards to the death of George Floyd. And I have certainly not forgotten about George Floyd himself. For, for the sake of his family, for the sake of Black people all across this country, for the sake of every other Black person who has lost their lives at the hand of police before now, I think that it's, it's, it's essential that justice is, is served. I think it's essential that this man goes to prison and rots there. But there, there's just, you know, seeing how so many of these cases have turned out, seeing, you know, how Trayvon Martin's case turned out, seeing how Philando Castile's case turned out, seeing how Tamir Rice's case turned out, it, I, there's that, there's that realistic twins of doubt in the back of my head that really makes me wonder about whether or not we'll actually see justice in this case. So again, I will talk about it in mass. Um, eventually once I feel like there's an adequate amount of information and then I can just talk about it all at once. But for now, I just wanted to let you guys know that it will probably be in the next couple of weeks because I have a couple of preset episodes for the next coming weeks, for the next two coming weeks, and then we'll get more, we'll get back into, you know, current event type stuff and talking about, you know, more of what's going on in our social and political spheres and society. So I did just want to say that very, very quickly. Finally, before we wrap up this week's episode, I do have something that's in my rotation that I want to share with you guys this week. In light of the recent uptick in gun violence, in light of the recent mass shootings that we've had, I watched the Grammy-nominated Netflix short film, If Anything Happens, I Love You. It is about two parents who are grieving the loss of their 10-year-old child who was killed at school. It's this little animated short film. Super cute, super, super sad. I think it's 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 really unfortunate how pertinent it is to this time. It's really unfortunate how how you can watch this and just think of so many school shootings, so many mass shootings where this could apply. 
It's not long at all, it's only about 13 minutes long, and I was shamelessly crying for about 11 of them. It, it'll, it'll be hard to watch, it'll be probably really upsetting to watch, but it's something that I think everyone should watch. I think it's something that even though, you know, we all know what's happening, even though we all know that this is a reality for us now, it's just, it, it puts it into a different perspective to see it in a way where the parents are grieving, to see it in a way where you know, the parents are trying to reckon with the loss of their child. And even though it's animated and it's not actually quote unquote real, the the reality and the density of the situation does resonate with you. So that is what is in my rotation this week. That's what I, that's something that I watched this week. And I, I almost said I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it in the way where like I walked away being like, oh, that was refreshing to watch. But I enjoyed it in the way where like it, it was it was something essential for me to watch. It was something that resonated with me. It was something that really in it was enlightening to me at that time. So I enjoyed it in the in the technical sense, but I didn't enjoy it in the literal sense, if that makes sense. With all of that being said, you guys, this week's episode is coming to a close. I hope you learned something this week. I hope you had a laugh this week. I know last week was really, really hard, so I was trying to bring a little bit of a more lighthearted airiness to this week's episode. I know I kind of failed, especially at the beginning and at the end, but I tried. If you enjoyed this week's episode and if you enjoy this podcast in general, please, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. It helps me a lot. Also, be sure to leave me a rating and review if you are on Apple. That also helps me a lot and make sure that other people like you can enjoy this podcast as well. If you want more from me, be sure to follow me on all of my social media platforms. All of my handles are just at Jalen Tully. Finally, you guys, this, this world is only as good as we make it. This government is only as good as we make it. This country is only as good as we make it. And our communities are only as good as we make them. So please go out and do your part. Care about people. Be kind to people. Lend a helping hand when you can. Give, your, give the best versions of yourself at all times whenever you can. The world definitely needs more of that. And of course, as always, I'm going to ask you to leave this episode and every episode before now ready to educate often, learn freely, and always love equally.